of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, January 2021, we are taking a deep dive into the topic of animal welfare assessments on the Pause platform. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Hannon Buchanan-Smith, who is the head of behavior and evolution research group in psychology at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much, Sabrina. It's great to be here and always a pleasure to talk about one of my passions, animal welfare. Wonderful. So before we dive into the nitty gritty and the science, it would be wonderful for the listeners if you do a short introduction to yourself and how you got to study animal welfare. Well, as you've said, um, I'm head of the Behaviour and Evolution Research Group here in Psychology at Stirling, and it's a wonderful group to be part of. We have nine lecturing members of staff and uh, a series of postdocs and postgraduate students with us. And it's a very interdisciplinary group. We use evolutionary principles to study behavior and communication and cognition, as well as welfare in quite a wide range of species. These include um, primates, human and non-human primates, and other mammals such as elephants and dogs, uh, giant pandas and birds, fish and insects. So as I say, we get a really good range of perspectives on um, a wide range of different topics. And the other um, hat that I wear here in Stirling is being director of the Stirling Human-Animal Interaction Research Group. We call it the SHARE Group, which really showcases and develops synergies in human-animal interaction research across the university and in collaboration with our external partners. So this group explores both human and animal welfare uh, and our flagship program here is called Pause for Progress, which was uh, founded by Dr. Rebecca Leonardi when she was one of our PhD students. Uh, and the tagline there is unleashing potential, improving lives. And so this is um, a program which is really rehabilitating dogs from rescue centers. And she takes them to a range of different facilities, but it includes uh, prisons, uh, and really here we have a wonderful win-win situation where there's mutual enrichment, we could say, both um, the dogs uh, and the, the young people in the prison are actually benefiting from these interactions. Wonderful. We'll make sure to put a link to this work because that's, of course, uh, very interesting and wonderful to hear about. And before we move to you know, some of the highlights and the specific research, you mentioned, you know, the evolutionary principles to study. Uh, and why is this important? I have a, a very strong belief shared by many other people who study animals is that we really have to understand the environments in which animals uh, adapted, in which they evolved. And so if we're going to really think about the welfare of animals in captivity, then we've really got to understand how they evolved, what their adaptations, what their predispositions are. And I feel very fortunate when I was doing my PhD, which was at the University of Reading under the supervision of Hilary Box, I wanted to combine my studies on red-bellied tamarins in captivity. I was studying their mating system, social organization and pair bonding, but I knew very well then that I, I really had to go and see them in the wild. And so I did a six month uh, field study in Bolivia uh, and that really changed 
my whole perspective on how we keep animals in captivity. It wasn't until I saw them in the wild that I really understood what they were designed for, what they were capable of doing in terms of, you know, their foraging, in terms of their locomotion, you know, some of the leap distances that they make in the wild was just mind blowing. And I also found out um, that they spend an awful lot of time living in these mixed species groups. And so I really feel that it's only through this broader understanding of the environments that they're naturally adapted to live in, can we really begin to think about providing appropriate captive conditions. Wonderful. Thank you so much for really these really important insights. And, and I'm delighted that not only, you know, are you a, a fabulous PhD supervisor um, and my friend, but also our, you know, joint work that we have done on the 24-7 approach across lifespan in animals and also where we used some of your insights and research and work to really you know, design this this wonderful and engaging workshop to really look at, you know, how do animals live in the wild? Uh, what are they capable of? All these various aspects from sensory systems to major life events. And then also, how are they living in human care? And uh, what are the differences, right? And then looking whether those differences are a welfare um, problem or not, because that is one of the things that people go through when they go through this workshop. So, and I think, you know, this insight of learning from the wild, uh, we've had, um, you know, Jake VC on one of the webinars on the pause platform and, and Jester Zoo some years ago hosted a wonderful seminar exactly on that topic and learning from the wild. So I'm very glad that you're highlighting this importance of looking at all those details of how animals are living in the wild and what they have evolved to do. And um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the highlights of the things that you have done in your career, because you have a very long and distinguished career, lots of publications on a wide variety of species and on different systems, uh, including animals in labs. So can you talk a little bit to that, please? Of course I can. So really, I feel that my um, research falls into three broad overlapping topics. Um, the first is mixed species living, the second is comparative color vision, and the third is animal welfare, which obviously we're going to, to focus on. But just let me mention the, the other two areas first, because they really have shaped and contributed to my views on welfare. So the, the mixed species living, as I say, stems back to my own PhD research and continues um, today because I'm involved with the mixed species groups of capuchin and squirrel monkeys that live at the Living Links to Human Evolution Research Centre, which is housed within the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland in Edinburgh Zoo. And this work I think is, is really interesting because when you study animals in their natural habitats, you really see what a dynamic environment that they live in. And as you know, um, the majority of animals we house in captivity are housed, I would say, as single species. But of course, no animal that lives in an outdoor enclosure is really living as a single species. Uh, often we forget that plants are species. And so most of them actually have plants growing in their enclosures. They'll have insects coming through their enclosures. So when I'm talking about mixed species groups, I'm really talking about uh, intentionally uh, humans placing two different species in the exhibit together. And the work that I've done there has really shown some of the, the benefits of living in mixed species groups in the wild. And there are potential benefits in captivity as well, but there are a number of challenges um, to these dynamic mixed species groups in captivity which includes size differential between the species, competition between uh, the species. But uh, on the whole, because we generally house the mixed species groups in larger enclosures, it does seem to have uh, the potential to have a positive impact on the different species housed together. But it does need close monitoring. 
So that was mixed species living. The, the, the second area that I mentioned there was comparative color vision. And in this topic, I'm really interested really in understanding how animals perceive their world. And this is very difficult because we're humans and we're, we're trying to put ourselves in the position of uh, a completely different animal. And this work is done with primates. And as we're primates, we ought to be able to get uh, at least some uh, similar perspective. Uh, and so again, I work with the, the Central and South American uh, monkeys here. And what we find is that in nearly all the species, the males are dichromatic. So colloquially, we'd call them colorblind. Uh, and the females can be either di or trichromatic. And the key thing here in relation to welfare is how you actually see the world will likely impact on how you interact with your physical and social world. And so understanding these animal senses really has big implications for, for care and captivity in terms of the type of enrichment we might give, uh, for example, in terms of uh, the color of targets we might use in positive reinforcement training sessions. So again, it, it goes back to that original topic that we mentioned, understanding the evolution and the natural adaptations, the natural history of animals really does inform uh, good captive conditions. And that third line of work, and this is the one we're going to, to talk more about, is the animal uh, welfare, trying to work out the best way to provide environments for animals to, to give them uh, opportunities to thrive. And as a scientist, this, this work has taken me into laboratories, um, initially because laboratories have very good sample sizes of animals living in nearly identical conditions, and therefore you can do some very elegant scientific experiments when you're working with good sample sizes. But one of the, the key things is that you can then understand that the principles underpinning good welfare, you can measure welfare in a wide range of different ways. And the key thing is then to apply it. And I, uh, one thing I really always try and promote is not just working as an academic in isolation, but trying to get the ideas and the principles then put out into practice. Absolutely. And you have done so in so many different ways from wonderful websites, obviously, together with lots of other people like Marmoset Care. And we'll make sure to add all those links of, you know, these practical aspects as well of putting that knowledge, um, you know, into practice for the animals to see how can it serve them. And you know, can you talk a little bit to a lot of people, you know, they might not necessarily want to become a professor at a university, but they love the idea of studying animals or, you know, getting into the field of maybe doing research projects. And can you talk a little bit to how you came to study animals and, uh, and maybe how, you know, maybe some of the activities that you did uh, to get there? Uh, absolutely. No, that's always fun talking about early life experiences, because I think they are so critical in shaping your thinking. Uh, I was very privileged that I was brought up in a, a family. Uh, both my parents were actually brought up on farms, and so they had close interactions uh, with animals uh, themselves. Indeed, my um, mother tells me that she had a pet chimpanzee and uh, a pet monkey, they were called Jacko and Ginny. So from a very young age, I was introduced to primates. Um, my parents also ran Icelandic riding, uh, Icelandic horse riding stables. And I'm told I could ride before I could walk, but I expect they just plonked me on the back of a horse. Um, I don't think you could really call it riding. Um, but I think those interactions of, of keeping pets, uh, of riding horses often bareback and, uh, and that communication that you had with the horse so you didn't have to kick it to make it go faster, you know, it had learned to, to respond to a signal, you didn't have to pull on a bit in the mouth to make it, it change direction or him or her change direction rather than it 
Um, so I think it was these, these very close interactions with animals as a child um, and going to Edinburgh Zoo, um, the school I was at in Edinburgh, we sponsored Ricky the chimpanzee there. And so we went regularly to the zoo. And I think, uh, again, whilst some zoos, I think, don't really promote that strong empathy towards animals because the conditions of the animals aren't necessarily those that promote that empathy. I think good zoos really have this fantastic opportunity to, to educate and to get people interested and in awe uh, of nature. So those are my sort of early beginnings and then um, just following up this, this interest of animals, I went to St. Andrews University, did a, deg a degree in psychology there. And it was really my final year dissertation when I went out to what was then the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust, which was run by the great uh, Gerald Durrell. And I was sort of fully immersed into understanding captive breeding of endangered species, uh, and the plight of animals in the wild. So from there, I think I was completely hooked. Um, went on to uh, Reading University, as I mentioned, to do my PhD, which combined that fieldwork in South America with studies in captivity. And then I might say that, that um, my career path did not follow the exact line I would have liked. I, I found myself actually as a, a visual psychophysicist working in a darkened lab back in St. Andrews, trying to understand the orientation of lines of sine wave gratings. And I did that for several years. Um, and I have to say, now, in retrospect, I'm very happy I did it because I learned about human vision and became interested in that work that I described on comparative color vision. Um, and I never gave up my, my dreams and my goals to continue working on animal behavior. And so I think the lesson there was, was persistence and motivation, um, and then you will get where you want if you don't give up. Wonderful. It's always so, like you say, interesting and lovely to hear like early career and also the things like I, for example, I didn't know this about you. So it's very interesting to hear that. And also that sometimes you just don't know what certain experiences or knowledge is actually going to, you know, help you or, you know, maybe fuel some other interests. Uh, so that's just wonderful. And can you dive deep a little bit more into why you wanted to study animal welfare and, and human-animal interactions? Absolutely, I can. I think um, when we think about uh, how we can try and improve the conditions of animals in captivity, then we often um, think about uh, what animal motivations are, what their needs are, how you can give um, animals opportunities for reward for, for goal-directed behaviours that they find engaging. And so I think this is exactly why I study it. I find it just incredibly rewarding to achieve or to, to be part of um, uh, achieving, part of a team that leads to improvements in uh, animal welfare. So um, it, it's really a huge privilege and a pleasure to make these positive differences to the animals and also, you know, to working with just some fantastic people. And I think another aspect of um, providing good conditions for animals in captivity is really providing them with opportunities for exploration and novelty. And that's another thing I enjoy and keeps me motivated in the work that I do. There is just so many interesting topics and I just work with so many amazing students who, who challenge me. And, and you know, I've, I've re recognized that I still have so much to learn and working with, with this wide range of different people, different animal species, different topics and perspectives is, is something that I feel very privileged to do. 
Yes, and I think you're bringing up really important point, at least to me, which is, you know, we have all kinds of animals in all kinds of different um, systems in different human cares, whether it's labs, whether it's farm animals, animals in zoos, companion animals in our home. Uh, but there's, like you say, the privilege of having, you know, the ability to study the animals, but also be actors for animals to really, you know, study things that matter to them that can make a difference to their life, rather than only for the sake of knowledge gathering. And, uh, and this idea of really and the action towards making those practical changes and improving the well being of animals in all kinds of systems. I think that's such an important point. Uh, because unfortunately, there's a lot of research also done uh, that doesn't necessarily end up, you know, in the for the benefit of animals or on the work floor. So also building those bridges uh, between, you know, the science and the practice, but also specifically, you know, taking the time, energy, money and all that to focus on what is it that could matter to these animals and how can we make it better, I think is so you know, important uh, in our field. So I'm very glad you, you bring up that important part of improvements for animals. And often, you know, when we talk about animals and caring for animals, um, there's very, it's very important to distinguish between care and welfare. And can you talk a little bit to that, please? Of course I can. It, it is, as you say, it's a very important distinction. We recognize that humans are an inevitable part in the lives of all captive animals. And so as humans, we provide the care, we provide the captive conditions, we, we make all the decisions for them. And they're usually well motivated, though sometimes, of course, um, people think they're caring for animals, but they may not uh, actually be translating that into um, good animal welfare. So we can uh, think about care in terms of the type of enclosures and furnishings that we provide for the animals, uh, the, the temperature that we might give them within their indoor enclosures. We decide who they live with, the type of food they get, when they get it. We often decide every aspect uh, of the lives of animals and in laboratories, and I can talk about that more, uh, this is often much more controlled. It's very, very standardized, which I think is, is a worry in, in many senses. So, so the care, I think, is of what we do in terms of housing and, and husbandry of the animals. But of course, we cannot um, give animal welfare. We cannot provide animal welfare because animal welfare is very much the, the property of the individual, the property of all sentient creatures. And it's how the animal actually responds to the care that we provide. And you can provide a group of animals with identical care, but not all of them are going to respond in the same way. They're not even necessarily an individual is going to respond to the care that we provide them you know, two days in a row, it, it very much depends on that individual animal at that individual point of time. So that's how I see the difference between care, what we actually provide for the animals, it's sometimes called the resources, the input, and then the welfare is the output, how, how the animal responds to it. And so it's, it's animal-based measures of the welfare. Excellent. It's exactly. It's so important to keep them separate to really understand, you know, like you say, welfare is the property. It pertains to the individual, their responses, their experiences. And, you know, the things that we are doing, and as you rightly say, also the things that you might do one day is well received. And the same thing you do a few days later uh, might be not so well received. So really, and it takes us right into, you know, the importance of animal welfare assessments and why are they important? Well, they're important for all sorts of, of reasons, but I might just take a, a step back because animal welfare assessments um, have to be fit for purpose. And this is a term we use quite often in, in laboratories, uh, actually about animals themselves. And this is why animal welfare 
uh, one of the motivations for my work with animals in laboratories um, is that if the, the, the science and animal laboratories are often used in scientific procedures, which basically uh, have the potential to cause pain, uh, suffering, distress or lasting harm to animals, and it's generally uh, the primates and the dogs that I use uh, or I study um, in laboratories uh, are mainly used um, for uh, toxicity testing, so the safety testing uh, of new medicines. And so in, in that case, we talk about fit for purpose uh, in that if you want to study uh, the response of uh, a new substance, new compound on uh, a normal biological functioning animal, then you have to ensure its welfare is good. Otherwise, it is not fit for purpose. It's not going to make a good model. And I think in terms of animal welfare assessments, we also can talk about the assessment being fit for purpose because there are many different reasons we may wish to assess an animal's welfare. We may, uh, and I've described some of the contexts in which uh, I do scientific research to try and understand the, the principles behind what may benefit uh, an animal. So the psychology of control or um, the impact of positive reinforcement training, so there's a number of different uh, ways you can look at uh, animal welfare from a research perspective where you might like to try and combine a number of different components of an animal's welfare. But when it comes to uh, animal welfare assessments in uh, zoos, you may uh, want to do it as a risk assessment to make sure that uh, the, the enclosures and the animals within them uh, are, are in a, in a good state of health and welfare. You may want to do animal welfare assessments for the longer term management uh, of species, but I think the absolute key thing with any animal welfare assessment is that you don't just collect the data, you actually uh, analyze it in some way and make sure that you intervene. You, you do something with this data to improve the lives of the animals, either by minimizing uh, any suffering, or I think more critically now, we, we like to talk about uh, really trying to promote uh, and enhance the welfare of the animals. So what more can we do to make the life of that animal better? Yes, and can you also maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the different types of welfare assessments or maybe a few examples so people have an idea of, okay, so what could that look like? What are some of the things I could do? No, absolutely. I think um, animal welfare assessment uh, can be incredibly difficult to measure, but I don't want to put people off trying to measure it. So let me just expand uh, on that. For a full welfare assessment, uh, we might want to measure a whole wide range of different parameters. And these can be broken down into um, behavior, health-related factors, and, and physiological factors. So let me start with behavior, which um, is, is one of the most immediate welfare indicators that we have. It's, it's non-invasive, we can actually just go up, it's immediate, we can see uh, how the animal is responding. Uh, and in behavior, I'm including um, studying the posture of the animal, the facial expressions of the animal, the vocalizations of the animal. I, I think we don't often actually listen out to what our animals are telling us, but they, they tell us a lot through their vocalizations. Uh, and we can also do tests called judgment bias tests, where we can try and find out how an animal is feeling, which is very difficult. But if we follow, and I think most people now accept that um, David uh, Meller and his colleagues, The Five Domains, is a way of really uh, framing and understanding animal welfare, where we have a number of physical domains that then feed into this affective experience domain and it's actually trying to to measure 
how an animal experiences their world. So continuing on this, this full welfare assessment, we have all those different measures of behavior, postures, facial expressions, vocalizations. Then you have all your health related factors, uh, such as body weight, such as coat conditioning, such as uh, disease or wound healing or whatever. And you also have all your physiological factors. So, you know, you can have your heart rate, your blood pressure, your hormone level, blood biochemistry. So actually there are so many different ways that we can try and quantify uh, an animal's welfare. And the problem is that, that they're not always aligned, all these different measures. And so I think this is, is why um, the five domains model is so important, because it is actually how the animal is experiencing a wide range of these different physical uh, and the behavior domain. So, so in research, we really um, try and get multiple uh, measures, and I can come on and talk about some specific uh, examples about that. Um, but it's, it's very different, I think, when it comes to uh, doing welfare assessments on ground, as it were, um, how we can actually um, measure animal welfare in a zoo. And there are really three uh, key things here about what makes uh, a good animal welfare assessment approach. Uh, one is that it is valid, so it really is a, a measure of welfare. Uh, a second one is that it's reliable, that different people can record the same thing consistently, because of course you're going to have multiple uh, care staff looking after animals, and so you have to make sure that your measures are consistent. And then uh, the third one, so we are valid, reliable, the third one is feasible, and that is that um, you're, you're actually uh, doing it within your time constraints, you know, knocking out an animal to get an invasive uh, blood sample or whatever isn't going to be feasible in most cases, nor humane or necessary in most cases. So you have to make sure that it's val valid, reliable uh, and feasible. And when we're thinking about, you know, the welfare assessments and having to be fit for purpose and these key aspects, of course, there's like all these different types of frameworks and models. I'm, you know, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in, you know, designing good animal welfare assessments or working through them, or maybe even, you know, some examples of how you have overcome them? So I think um, one of the main challenges is, as you say, that uh, some of the behaviors that we may see as key to um, measuring welfare, they don't occur at a sufficient frequency in order to be able to be reliable measures on a, a regular basis. So that's one of the challenges. I already mentioned one of the other ones that you may actually get different measures providing conflicting uh, responses. And actually uh, cortisol, which uh, people often think of as a stress hormone. I prefer to, to think of it as uh, an activity hormone because actually it, it indicates arousal and it, it can indicate positive arousal uh, or it can be negative arousal. Um, but what we find is that uh, in marmosets, which is one of the species that uh, I study uh, regularly, is that actually that um, cortisol doesn't always tally with some of the behavioral indices that we see. And so it's quite um, frustrating. It's quite difficult to interpret when you have different welfare measures um, contradicting each other. In terms of some of the, the uh, other challenges I, I faced in terms of developing uh, animal welfare assessments, I think it's bringing everybody on board. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit over ambitious sometimes. I have to accept that change is slow. I, I have to accept that, um, you know, when you've designed a, a welfare assessment that it may not be used in exactly the way that uh, you want it uh, or you expected it to be used. Um, but I think, you know, ju just continuing to work as a team 
and to provide um, more ownership. So, so I think, you know, as, as I mentioned before, we've got to really look at the motivation about why people would want to do animal welfare assessments. And given that, you know, as, as we talked about before, it's humans who are providing the, the, the conditions for animals. And so I think if we're going to improve animal welfare, we've always got to think about the, the human side of it, the motivations, and actually uh, how we can encourage uh, humans to be more um, engaged to really think about the the care that they provide from for the animals from the animals perspective yes so the animal perspective it keeps coming back of course because ultimately you know the differences between caring for the animals all the care that we are providing the input the resources but what do the animals think um, and feel about that and of course as you've been saying all along this importance of you know our animal welfare assessments looking at the animal in detail and you know overcoming and one of the things for example when we do new research projects um, we often you know start with for example or even other activities it could be you know designing a particular program for an animal but to have like for example a kickoff meeting you know where especially also when you're going as a researcher or as a student into a facility you know why are you here what are you doing so like you say you know getting people on board obviously the, the facility has already said yes but often you know the people who are directly caring for the animals or at different levels they don't necessarily know why you're there why are you trying to study this and also how does it will how will it potentially benefit the animals so one of the things you know that you could do of course is really you know making sure that you have you know, for getting the team and everybody on board uh, is to really also explain. And the other important part is to feed back to what did you find? Um, like you said, Hannah, you know, what are these improvements that you can make with the findings, uh, if appropriate, of course. So, but uh, yeah, there's so many ways, but to really, even though, you know, sometimes indeed change can be slow, but in what ways can we work together and go small steps every day forward? And, you know, we always love good uh, stories of animals, but also, of course, you know, stories of research and specific examples. And you have done a lot of different research from facial expressions to personalities. You talked already about mixed species exhibits and a little bit about, you know, predictability, choice control. So I would love to dive a little bit deeper on some of these specific research you know, projects that you have done. Uh, and perhaps you, we could start with facial expressions, um, you know, the underutilized uh, tool for the assessment of welfare in mammals, for example. Tell us more about that, please. Absolutely, I'd be delighted to. So I, again, I want to, to credit um, Chris Deskovich here and Sarah Vick, who um, were the, the ones who are mainly working uh, on the projects that I've done on, on facial expressions. And, you know, we've already mentioned that actually, um, if we want to measure welfare, we really want to, to uh, understand the internal state of, of animals. And that really has in, inherent challenges. We, we don't even know how each other feel, never mind how uh, another animal uh, of a different species might be able to feel. But I think facial expressions really uh, can provide important insights into internal uh, states. And we're learning more and more about how to, to measure facial expressions. And I think we can really take advantage of our innate um, human observational bias to actually focus on that uh, facial area. It, it seems that um, facial expressions are really quite a, an honest signal uh, of an internal state, um, the, the, the facial displays, you know, you, you can't help it sometimes if you're disgusted or if you're frightened or if you're in pain, it's very difficult to actually hide your facial expression. And so I think we can learn an awful lot about um, understanding affective states and experiences 
uh, of animal welfare, and then these can go on and underpin improvements um, in uh, uh, animal welfare. Because as you've mentioned, Sabrina, it's all very well collecting lots of data on animal welfare, but it's only if we can actually do something with those data and be willing to to intervene or to change or to modify the care that we provide that are these welfare assessments useful? Yes, absolutely. On the POS platform, starting this month, we have actually started, every time we have the word action, the ACT is actually in capital letters. It's about, you know, not just the word action, but it's act, it's, you know, think about how can you use it and this, response ability right your response you have the ability to respond and make changes uh, which obviously we have a responsibility for animals you know to care for them and it's our ability to respond that also makes us uh, very good actors uh, for animals and uh, yeah can you tell us also more about personality and of course you already mentioned lots of other peoples that we're working with and that has been a thread throughout this podcast and many others is the importance of all working together and you know we all have our different expertise and so on so it's really a delight to hear all the other people that you have worked with Hannah and um, can you talk a little bit about personality? Of course I'd be delighted to. Um, personality is, is fascinating. Um, it's, it's all about individual differences uh, and I've been working on personality again with quite a, a wide range of different collaborators and a range of different species. And some of it has been to work out the, the structure of personality in different uh, animals. So I've worked with capuchin monkeys, uh, with Blake Morton uh, and Alex Weiss and colleagues and with Marmosets, with Sonia Kosky and Haley Ash uh, and others. So I, I expect we, all know that uh, in humans um, there are five factors um, openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism and what we find in other animals and it's not just in, in primates uh, i know that you've just published a, a, a paper with blake morton and, and others on personality structure in dolphins what we find is that we do have some of the same um, factors uh, and that actually these relate to uh, welfare in some ways and not all animals really have the same propensity for happiness or they don't have the same uh, outward expression of uh, happiness and I think it's really important that we we think about this I know that I'm a bit of a, an extrovert um, and I'm quite happy, you know, being being uh, sociable with people. Um, but again, you know, just to to um, tell a story, pulling on uh, uh, one of my students in one of my final year classes, actually, an undergraduate student who um, I was trying to jolly along, I think, and and get her to get more engaged with the group. And, and it was a it was a class on animal welfare. And she looked at me and she said, Hannah, I don't think you get it that I'm actually happy being quiet and just sitting here. You know, she was more introverted and that was her state of happiness. She didn't want to, to be pressurized. And I think similarly with animals, we've got to accept that this, there is a wide range of different personalities and it's just allowing animals to be uh, within their comfort zone in many cases, sometimes to challenge them out of their comfort zone, but um, giving them choices and complex environments because within any environment you're going to, to, to have animals who, who are different and will respond differently to an identical stimulus. And I think that's uh, a very key uh, point in terms of personality and, and animal welfare, I would like to just mention um, the work of Yvonne Bauer here, who uh, is uh, another of our PhD students, um, uh, supervised by Sarah Vick and myself. And um, she's been particularly interested in looking at uh, uh, welfare of gorillas, but she's doing it on a range of different timescales. So this to me is very exciting. So I know that you and I have collaborated 
uh, on animal welfare 24-7 across the lifespan. Um, and I think it's really important because what Yvonne uh, has been doing is, is looking at gorillas and looking at their immediate emotions, their short duration, uh, their facial expressions. She's been looking at behavioral states, so how you actually see welfare over a longer period of time. But she's also got data on personality, which is um, uh, not, not fixed because personality can, can change, but it is uh, quite predictable over time, your personality. And then she's matching it also up with longevity, so records of, of how long gorillas live. And I think this is a very exciting approach, really, to understand more of that holistic life experience of an animal and how these different measures of welfare interconnect over different timescales. Wonderful. We'll definitely have to keep an eye out on her work and publications and we'll make sure to link to it on it on the pause platform if it comes available. So that's really wonderful to hear. You know, it's always so nice, these podcasts, not only to have, you know, the honor and, and the, the joy to speak to the speaker, but also to hear about, you know, who you know and who are your students or your colleagues and other people's work. And it's just so nice uh, also from a perspective of this interdisciplinary approach, right? Because we might we might be working with, with cats or with stork, and um, but the way that somebody else is studying gorillas or how you have been studying dogs, um, in what ways can they be helpful for the stork that you're caring for, right? So it's this whole chain of us all working for animals together. And uh, when we talk also about animals together, you already mentioned mixed species exhibits and, um, uh, you know, many zoos and aquariums have moved uh, towards having multiple species uh, in various ways um, in, you know, their facilities. Could you talk a little bit to, you know, these exhibits and some of the opportunities or challenges that you see? Uh, absolutely. So as I, as I mentioned before, I think mixed species exhibits uh, are really beneficial um, for some combinations of animals, but you have to be very careful uh, about the combinations of animals that you put in the exhibit and you have to monitor their welfare. I think it's um, more important to, to monitor welfare in these dynamic mixed species exhibits. But I think there are, there are ways that you can design enclosures to make sure that there are opportunities for, for example, that the, the smaller species to have uh, a safe area. So at the Living Links to Human Evolution in Edinburgh Zoo, where we have these squirrel monkeys and capuchin monkeys living in mixed species groups, the, the entrance to the squirrel monkey indoor enclosure is small so the larger capuchins can't get in. And the squirrel monkeys therefore have that safe haven. Uh, there's actually a, a mirror image. There's two mixed species groups of capuchin and squirrel monkeys. And on one wing, the squirrel monkeys uh, don't seem to spend very much time with the capuchins uh, and rarely go into the capuchin indoor exhibit. Whereas on the other side, squirrel monkeys um, even go in and sleep with the capuchins in their indoor exhibit. And they spend quite a lot of time uh, foraging uh, for, the, for the capuchin food. So we can't even draw generalizations about the, the same two species because we will get um, mixed species group differences even within the same species in identical enclosures, which sort of goes back to, to my point on personality and individual uh, differences. What we, we found, and, and uh, this is a, a very um, heartening study, when, when we put the, the two species uh, together, so this was uh, 11 years ago when the, the Living Links to Human Evolution Research Centre uh, was first opened. Um, again, with Rebecca Leonardi, we were, were studying the species together. And what we found actually was that there was some competition, some uh, aggressive interactions between the capuchin and the squirrel monkeys. Um, but there were only specific locations where these seemed to occur. And on the basis of our original study, 
um, there was a, a refurbishment of the enclosure. Um, we were able to then monitor the welfare again. Uh, and uh, pleasingly, we found that the aggressive interactions went down and the affiliative interactions and the, the play interactions between the species went up. So I think that's a nice success story of where we've really worked in partnership with the, the zoo to, to collect these detailed data, to make suggestions for change, and then the change has been incorporated and we've had the desired effect. Wonderful. These things are so key is to, you know, to monitor, to make the changes, to mon continue monitoring. And like you say, all these individual differences and uh, which really takes me to, I know is one of also your, you know, interests and passions and it's the psychology of control and the importance of predictability. And uh, can you talk a little bit on these two subjects? I'd be delighted to, but can I just um, first mention that uh, the Living Links to Human Evolution uh, now may have uh, an associated field site with it. So uh, just to, to mention Sophia Dowdy, who's been working out in, in Suriname, and uh, she was studying the, the squirrel monkeys and, and capuchins there and came back on the basis of her fieldwork to make suggestions uh, for a new refurbishment at Living Links. And so once again, we've had another fantastic cycle of uh, improvements to the enclosure there based on the, the data that she collected in the wild. So just Wonderful. another success story that puts a, a big smile on my face. Excellent. So, yes, you asked me to talk about um, uh, the psychology of control and predictability. Um, uh, there are many different types of predictability and, and predictability and control are inextricably linked together. So if you uh, are, are controlling something, then you are able to uh, predict what's going to happen. So just as a... Uh, quick definition of what I'm talking about when, when something is controllable. It's if there's a difference in the likelihood of the event occurring depending on your behavior. So, so turning on a light, for example, would be something that we can control. And in terms of predictability, there are really three different types of predictability that we've um, uh, been doing work on. One is spatial predictability, which is uh, when, when something uh, always occurs in the same location. There's temporal predictability, uh, which is the, the timing of the event. And we know that animals have these circadian clocks and they know very well um, uh, the rough time of day uh, without a watch. Uh, and then we also have signal predictability. So uh, you get a signal uh, like a noise or a visual signal, for example, a, a keeper going past, which will actually give you uh, a clue as to what might happen. And of course, you can vary the reliability uh, of uh, each of these different types of predictability. And what we find is that the significance of predictability is dependent upon the, the valence of the event, i.e. whether it's a, a positive event or it's a negative event. And particularly with negative events, and this is from uh, reviewing the literature rather than doing studies ourselves, if it's a negative event, then animals really strongly prefer to have that event on a predictable schedule. Now, as I say, we haven't done this research, but I think um, just to highlight how important this is, work done from the 70s, um, where they were actually looking at the predictability of um, giving uh, rats electric shocks. And if rats were able to choose between predictable or unpredictable electric shocks, they would actually produce pre choose the predictable shocks that were either longer or stronger than the unpredictable electric shocks. And it seems to be that um, it's because 
they know that they can relax. They have this safety period if they're able to predict the shocks. And so they don't get themselves in a state of chronic stress, which may be um, shown in gastric ulcers and, and some really um, severe uh, chronic stress uh, indicators. So that's just um, to highlight um, how important um, predictability is. Uh, as I say, with um, uh, positive events, actually, if you get a, a complete surprise positive event, that's uh, really nice. I think um, most animals uh, enjoy, but it does depend again on their, their natural uh, history and understanding their natural history when we come to, to look at uh, predictability uh, of events. What we don't want is that the positive events become so predictable and the animals are looking forward to that positive event so much that they show an awful lot of anticipatory behavior. So um, I'm sure people have seen, for example, food anticipatory behavior in animals before where clearly that they are just waiting for their food. Um, and work with Corrie Waite showed that um, it was with stumptail macaques, which were fed generally on a, a temporarily predictable schedule. But if the care staff got delayed, then this food anticipatory behavior would actually continue. And some of it became uh, uh, quite negative. And so we really have to, to think about uh, the different uh, spatial, temporal and signal predictability that we are um, providing for animals because it has the potential to have a, a major impact on welfare. And so may I now go on and talk about control because that was, was predictability and some of the, the work that we've done with predictability. With uh, control, I'm going to just describe one study that um, Inbal Badihi did as part of her PhD. It was in a laboratory situation with common marmosets, and it was really to, to understand the importance of having control. And we wanted to look at a biologically relevant um, stimuli for these animals, and that was control over light and heat. So there was a, a touch sensitive uh, uh, what do you call it, a button, a touch-sensitive button that was uh, put at the front of the marmosets' enclosures. And when they came and touched it, then the light would go on. And if they touched it again, the light would go off. And we had a really good sample size. So uh, we were able to have those that actually had the control of the light. And then there was another group that um, was yoked, so they had no control over the additional light and heat, but it came on and off at the same time uh, as the groups that were actually controlling it. And here we had some really important findings. Not only did um, the marmosets like to control the light and heat, but we found that it was the youngsters whose behavior and whose welfare was most impacted, most positively impacted by this ability to control the environments. And when we think about animals in smaller uh, enclosures, where there is not often the opportunity to engage in an awful lot because they are in these smaller enclosures, it then becomes um, really important to be able to give them something that they can actually uh, control. Wonderful. And I think um, you published a paper on predictability uh, many years ago. And, and if I'm correct, but please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember something about you mentioning that it's actually not only people interested in animal welfare who are downloading this predictability paper. Uh, absolutely. So the paper it was a review paper. Uh, Lois Bassett was the first uh, author on it um, because she was doing her PhD with me specifically uh, on um, predictability. 
and some positive reinforcement training because uh, actually you do get predictability in positive reinforcement training. Uh, but what we found uh, actually in terms, it, it, it doesn't just apply to animals, it applies to humans as well. I mean, you can just think about, you know, your visit to, to the dentist or whatever. Um, it's, it's quite nice if you're actually told what's going to happen or when it's going to, to happen rather than coming completely out of the blue. And then when you're able to, to relax between, uh, uh, I don't know, different drilling or whatever. So, yes, it's, it, it very much applies to humans as well. Yes, and I think that's, again, such a wonderful example when we're thinking about, you know, interdisciplinary. So looking from farm animals to zoo animals to lab animals and companion and so on. And also looking at the wider, you know, what different things people are doing in economics or in human well-being or so on that we can learn from or take from or adapt from. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the importance of predictability, many zoo, you know, care staff and of course, also in other fields have, you know, introduced things like saying door before they actually open or close a door to try, you know, to tell animals when they are doing things. And uh, so, you know, we're trying to reduce animals sitting indoors or in tunnels because they're not sure of what and when things will happen, uh, you know, wearing a cap or a different sweater or anything else that really differentiates between maybe a capture event or, you know, regular interactions. Um, people have started with maybe saying the word touch before they would touch an animal or maybe combine it with a body parts because you can't always see when somebody's maybe on the side or at the back, you know, what you're going to do and how. So to avoid animals maybe being a little jumpy because suddenly you're touching them, you know, so people have found. So when we're talking about choice and control, it's really about how do we make that real, right? How do we make that practical when we're working with animals? So there's wonderful um, you know, research done and also lots of, you know, imp implemented actions by people who are caring for animals to give animals choice to control or to, you know, be able to predict what is going to happen, especially also in the, in the things that are maybe not so nice. Um, lots of, you know, also I heard of wonderful, um, training with uh, dogs and also horses where the horse would touch a bucket or something else when they felt ready to, you know, do some training or do a, a, a leg lift or something for touching. Uh, so there's lots and lots of, you know, information already out there and we'll make sure to link to some of these uh, so that again, we can take science and we can take practice and implement it uh, for animals. And which also really, you know, takes us to the last parts of this podcast. And um, could, could you talk to uh, the importance of collaborating in science and in practice? I'd be delighted to, as I say, um... Nearly all my research is, is done in collaboration. I see, I see no point as an academic um, working away on, on theory unless um, what we do then is actually used in practice to make positive improvements in uh, animal welfare. And I've got some nice um, success stories really of, of how we've collaborated together to, to make changes. So. Um, one of them that I'm uh, really very proud of um, is the, the work, it started off with my PhD uh, work in Bolivia on, on the tamarins, uh, and in collaboration um, with quite a number of people, including uh, then Mark Prescott, who, who was again a PhD student of mine and now works uh, at the NC3R, so this is the National Centre for the three R's being um, replacement, reduction and refinement. So these are the principles that underpin the humane scientific technique. And so um, in collaboration with um, Mark, we actually got changes to um, European legislation to change um, the minimum cage sizes for um, primates in laboratories and particularly the marmosets and tamarins which used to be housed in identically uh, sized uh, small cages and on the basis of the work that we did as I say in collaboration with um, laboratories and, and combining uh, field work 
we actually managed to, to evidence and make a case for the need for larger cage sizes for primates. So that was a, a really exciting um, positive change that we, we made there. I also worked very closely, as I've mentioned, with Edinburgh Zoo, with our local safari park. And again, it's fantastic to see um, our research and our research findings being taken so that there are positive changes for the animals. Just to pick up a, on another one, um, I, I had a, a PhD student, Alex Ferrand, who was studying um, the, the pets farm at Blair Drummond. And here, the, the humans could actually go in and interact with the pets. Uh, and when I say the pets, you know, it had everything from llamas to pot-bellied pigs to goats. Um, but actually, it, it didn't seem to be particularly beneficial for the animals' welfare. The humans may have enjoyed it, but there wasn't so much choice and control that the, the, the petting uh, farm animals had. And so the Blair Drummond Safari Park changed it. And, and now it's up to the animals to decide whether they wish to come and be petted by humans, not up to the humans to decide if they want to, to go and pet a specific animal. And so I think it's been uh, really fantastic when we see these sorts of willingness for um, facilities to, to change on the basis of the evidence that we provide. Wonderful, thank you so much, Hannah, for sharing also, you know, not just the importance of collaborating in science, but also the success stories, because sometimes, especially when we have a lot of work or, you know, there are things, especially in these times when things are very trying and difficult, sometimes it's hard to see how far we have come and all the things we have been able to change. And, you know, throughout this podcast, you have, you know, obviously spoken a lot to paying attention to, you know, evolutionary principles and studying animals in the wild and really taking that information to keep on working on making improvements for animal welfare and the importance of interdisciplinary approaches and the complexity of the lives of the animals and their, you know, internal states as it is something that pertains to the individual, the well-being of the individual, and therefore the importance of doing, you know, animal welfare assessments that are fit for purpose, you know, talking about validity and reliability and feasibility, and really about, you know, how do we take, you know, the, the outcomes of our research, you know, the data, how do we use that to positively impact animals and also making the case whether it's to help, you know, in policy or to make the case for changing, you know, or an addition of a platform for the marmosets in your care, all of that coming together. So thank you so much, Hannah, for coming onto this podcast and really looking forward uh, to another one with lots more success stories and details of your research. Thank you so much, Sabrina. It's been lovely talking with you. Well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. At Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself. So to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare, PAWS is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get education and tools you need so that you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.